how are we all keeping? Uh, as you may have noticed at this point in time, Sweden is gearing up towards the Winter Olympics, and I'm gonna uh, break the fourth wall here. I'm gonna reveal, gonna show you behind the curtains, kind of like in the Wizard of Oz, right? So, many of you will know that I work with sports journalism, and one of the big things that I get to do, and one of the most enjoyable things that I get to do, is that I get to go to the Winter Olympics. But this year, of course, the Winter Olympics is taking place in Beijing, China, and all I've been hearing for about the last month or so is what a disaster it's going to be in terms of cybersecurity and data access and social media and all that kind of crack, right? So what does that mean for you? That means that for the last three or four weeks since Christmas, I have been working my backside off to get all the podcasts that are going to come out in the coming weeks pretty much finished so that I can have them for you and that I can pre-upload them uh, before I depart for Beijing. And that's what's happening here. By the time you hear this, I'm going to be in Beijing, China. I might be in isolation somewhere. You may never hear from me again. Who knows? But at least you're going to have three or four weeks of podcasts that are up there and ready to go no matter what happens to me. So it's a weird one, really, because um, if you look at the way sport is going at the moment, Qatar has the World Cup. Beijing has the the winter games we had Russia a few years ago and you know you can say what you like but there are sort of questionable regimes in a lot of these countries and you know somehow they managed to get their hands on these huge uh, sporting events and you know it's called sports washing where they try to use them to give themselves a bit of a a bit of a better look for the general public right but then at the same time they're saying to journalists you know there's no such thing as freedom of speech here you don't get to say what you want you know and we've also been told basically that we're not to bring our own personal equipment so I'm not bringing my own laptop that I usually produce these podcasts on um I'm bringing my own phone, but that's going to wind up in a bag somewhere, and they're telling you don't turn it on because it'll just be hacked immediately. You know, the Chinese want to get your data, they want to see who you're talking to. We've also been told, weirdly enough, that even if you're in the hotel at the Olympics there, that, you know, you're not safe there, they could very well be listening to you, and you may as well just assume that they are, you know. So that's the lie of the land at the moment. So, you know, don't worry. There are podcasts coming. There's going to be one every week at 7 o'clock in the morning of a Monday. Uh, They're all done. I've got some fascinating people that I've spoken to over the last few weeks. And it's been intense, but it's been really, really good. Some of it is to do with the Winter Olympics. Indeed, this episode today is to do with the Winter Olympics. uh, And next week, too. And then there's some to do with literature and there's some to do with business. So the, the show keeps rolling on. Remember, of course, that this is a community supported podcast, right? So without you and without your contributions, this simply cannot last. And I am delighted to be able to announce that we have our first long-term sponsor on board in the form of Martin Hessian and Veerstrom's Pub here in Gamla Stan in the old town in Stockholm, Sweden. Um, I spoke to Martin a little while ago about uh, the effect that COVID has had on his business and he very generously uh, said that he'd be interested in sponsoring the podcast and we've reached an agreement now and I'm delighted to have Veerstrom's on board. Uh, it has been for many, many years probably the favourite Irish pub of everybody in Stockholm and you know if you've ever visited it you'll know why. There's loads of lovely nooks and crannies very old-fashioned there's wood there's little sort of parlor rooms and it's a great place to go there's great irish music sessions and now with covid lifting uh, we'll be able to spend a little bit more time in the confines of veerstrom's pub on these winter afternoons as we come towards the summer and uh, let's not forget that you'll have all major sporting events on the tv in there so we're coming up on the start of the six nations the winter olympics the, the premier league is going on there and if there's that you want to see the gaa season will be starting soon enough i know Owen sheedy does be down there watching a bit of hurling and uh, if you just ask them whenever you're there 
um, to stick on whatever sport it is you're looking for and I'm sure they'd be more than happy to, to help you out there. there's wonderful bar staff down there thankfully Ian Taylor doesn't work there anymore spent years there behind the bar telling everybody how bad Everton was we knew already Ian but yeah a fantastic place to go and of course uh, there's probably one of the most popular bar menus in all of Sweden just really good simple fish and chips and burgers and all sorts of stuff down there to be had on the menu often made by Martin himself he tends to hide in the kitchen these days rather than be behind the bar so hugely grateful to Martin uh, for sponsoring the podcast and he'll continue to do so hopefully and uh, looking forward to a long and fruitful relationship with him any other businesses wishing to get involved are more than welcome to contact me on LinkedIn or on Instagram or however it is you'll find me knocking around the place, right? But there's also the possibility for you as a private individual there. You might be working in Karolinska, you might be working somewhere in town, you might be on one of the building sites uh, up in the north. So there is a possibility there depending on whether or not you have a Swedish bank account or if you'd like to go over the Patreon route. So if you have a Swedish bank account and you have Swish, please feel free to make a donation to 123-2424-166, right? Now the best way for me, right, uh, if I were to keep this going, is patreon.com forward slash arrowman in Stockholm. And basically what you're signing up for there is a monthly contribution. Some people do it for two euros, preferably if you can, do it for like five euros and 50 crowns. Because me knowing that that's coming in every month just makes it so much easier to say, yeah, I can dedicate the time to doing this. Or as has been the case so far, I can spend the money going out and meeting people and finding the stories that I get to tell you on this podcast, right? So if you can do that, that's magnificent. And then for advertising or sponsorship, you can contact Irish and Sweden podcast at gmail.com or you can hit me up on Instagram or any of the social media. And that's the kind of thing I've spoken a little bit before about the difference between advertising and sponsorship, right? I may not be able to find your customers for you. If you're working, you have a big engineering company, I don't know if, you know, buyers in Sweden are listening to it. But in supporting this podcast, you're supporting maybe the people who work for you and the Irish community here, right? So you may not get a huge return on your advertising investment, but by sponsoring it, and, you know, lads, I know how this goes, right? There's big books to be made in some of the projects that are going on around the place so if you can help me keep going i can keep providing this service for you and for your listeners and for the people who work for you right but as i was saying there are two stories of a sporty nature that i want to bring to you this week one is one of well i suppose both are, are tales of courage and pig-headedness a little bit later in the show you're going to be hearing from carl lambert from county wicklow in ireland right and carl was out for a few points with a few other people in the irish community here a few years ago uh, a little over 10 years ago to be exact when they decided they were going to do vasa Luppet, which is a 90 kilometer cross-country skiing race despite the fact that these irish lads had never stood on skis before in their lives right but before that, we want to bring you some of the true Olympic glitter and the glitz, right? And we're going to do that by talking to Aoife Hoey-Prince. Aoife lives over here now, but back around the same time, a year before the lads were deciding to do Vossa Luppet, Aoife represented Ireland in the bobsleigh competition at the Vancouver Olympics in 2010. And this is what I love about this podcast, lads, right? Because you, 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 stories just come to you. People say, oh, you should talk to this person. You should talk to that person. Uh, oh, th- this person was an Olympian. This person did this, that, and the other, right? Aoife qualified for the bobsleigh at the 2010 Olympics, but the story around what happened to her in the days coming up to it and the competition and how she got involved in bobsleigh and all that, it's just, it's fantastic. And now with the, with the game starting and that kind of thing, a lot of you, the people around you, the people you work with, the Swedes that you work with are going to be watching these things. So it's good to have a little story of your own to be able to tell them. Uh, and it's good to be able to get involved with that. So let's have a listen to Eva Hoey Prince and the story of how she became an Olympian wearing the green of Ireland in Vancouver, Canada in a bobsled in 2010. Now, and to do 
that, we're going to ask you to take a look back at your Olympic experience. So can you just tell me how you came to be at the Olympics there in Canada? It's so long ago since actually I've even had um, questions about the Olympics. And when I realised we were going to have a chat, I was trying to go back through my memory bank and kind of go back so far back in time now, a different chapter completely in my life. But um, I've been involved in athletics um, since I was a child um, from my dad's interest in sports um, through my sister, my brother and then myself. So I came from athletics track and field background and my sister had been involved in athletics and was part of the recruitment uh, process for the first Irish women's bobsleigh team. And um, she was successful as being part of that team. And then when I kind of came to age around 16, 17. I also um, completed trials um, held in Morton Stadium in Santry Mm -hmm. and um, was successful at those trials and then had to wait till I was 18 before I was able to hit the ice on our home track, which would have been uh, Innsbruck Eagles in Austria. So it all kind of kicked off from there. But uh, I think my... um, my ability to to run fast, I was a strong athlete. All of those things kind of were a natural avenue into into bobsleigh. Because are, are you from County Leash? Am I right in saying that? I am. Yes, Port Arlington. Not not known Port Arlington as a hotbed of winter sports. Am I correct? No, <laughs> no, no, no. Actually, we're the first winter athletes, Olympic athletes, to come out of Port Arlington. Um, we, I, I suppose, there's not hasn't been many winter athletes come out of Ireland at all. Mm. I think we had, I can't remember, and I feel very ignorant now. It's either between six and nine of us travelled to Vancouver 2010 from Ireland mm. as a team of winter sports athletes. So, no, we don't have a great history of winter sporting athletes. However, we haven't had a huge amount of support as a nation for winter sports uh, financially through funding um, or even from publicity in order for athletes to achieve their goals so we haven't had a great history because we haven't done a lot to create that history Mm. Um, Did you find it weird when your sister came home and said I'm thinking of getting involved in Mm. bobsledding and that kind of thing did you go are you mad or was it just the most natural thing in the world to you? You know, we're just such an unhealthy family that way. We're so ambitious and eager to achieve. And it didn't really matter to us what it was that was going to help us to get to that Olympic dream. Obviously, athletics would have been our our first love. But then we saw another avenue where we could use our skill sets um, in winter sports, in, in bobsleigh. So, yeah, we didn't really know what we were getting into. And even through her stories and her experience it wasn't really something you would be like oh I'd love to do that it sounds like an easy way to a games or an easy way to travel the world it certainly wasn't it was absolute hardship but then the determination the sheer stubbornness of us is what actually made us keep going and what was the training like because obviously you know in Port Island, if you're in Ireland and you're studying or you're working or that kind of thing you know I know mm. you mentioned Innsbruck there as well you know you can't just sort of drop everything and head off to places so how did you manage to get that training done and what kind of training was it? Yeah well we um, were full-time athletes but trying to train full-time but work full-time or study full-time I can't remember when Siobhan was I think she was teaching at the time but would have to take leave of absence from school for the winter period um you know would have to pay a sub to come in and do her lessons I was in Maynooth in university when I first started um yeah so we had to make a lot of sacrifice in order to fit this whole winter schedule in so training was using the National Athletic Stadium in Santry we had um, an old bobsleigh that had been used I think by the men's team back in Nagano Olympics years and years before that. So it had been brought to Ireland. It was on wheels. We literally put 
pushed the sled up and down the indoor stadium or outside in the rain um, every Saturday morning. Um, we trained for our athletics um, five, six days a week. So we did weightlifting, um, we did plyometrics, anything we could do to gain strength and power without having professional coaches, professional people helping us with diet or nutrition. So we were at every disadvantage, but wanted to do our utmost best to ex- to excel within this sport that was new to us. Uh, it's one of those films a lot of people will be looking for on Netflix now, the film Cool Runnings about the yes, Jamaican team. Right. And I'd say yeah. you're probably sick to the back teeth of bringing it up. But Well, to be honest, at the time, yes, we were absolutely <laughs> sick of the comparison of the Banana Republics, you know, you know, the, the wooden spoon coming from the end of the field to try and, to try and achieve and to, to be successful. We knew the men's team. Uh, we actually knew they had a women's team for a period of time. Uh, and to be honest with you, they were probably even in a better situation than, than we were because mm. they had fun and they were top class, world class athletes. Yeah. Um, so they all they had that, you know, they had sponsorship and stuff like that. So they were actually in a better position than we were. But there was a lot of small nations, the same as us, who were struggling to um, to compete on a world class level. And we did our absolute best to to be at the top level with the best Germans, the best Americans. They had three or four teams each, and there we were, you know, self funded supported by families and friends and fundraising events. And there we were, neck to neck, you know, head to head with these people on a World Cup level. Um, what's it like the first time you bail after your bobsled, you have your run up done, you jump in the back there. What's it like to go hammering down the track? It's, um, I started out actually as a brake woman. So we, were, I, we had a couple of seasons of different drivers, young women, who were learning how to drive, not again, having a small nations coach that was appointed by the International Bobsleigh Association. So we had somebody who was appointed to coach a couple of the small nations to teach us how to get from top to bottom. Um, so I jumped, my first experience was in the back behind a rookie coach at the, um, driver at the time. So my um, experiences weren't great. They weren't enjoyable. We'd had, had a lot of accidents, lots of crashes, lots of injuries quite scary getting into the back of a bobsleigh um you literally push off as hard as you can jump in and it's head down all the way um you know the rhythm of the track you know the kind of sequence of the bends and stuff but you're not you have no responsibility other than keep down don't move and you have a lot of g-force in a bobsleigh depending on the track depending on the speed you could hit maybe four g's on some tracks um so it can be bumpy it can be rocky it can be it can be quite scary if your driver hasn't got a good run from top to bottom so after a couple of years of not enjoying being in the back not being in control decided to learn how to drive uh, and get myself into the front so I could see where we were going knowing what was happening and and that's where I stayed then all the way up until the games and do you feel a greater responsibility then obviously as a driver because you've been there at the back pulling the brake right you yeah. know what it's going yeah. to be like for the for the girls behind yeah. you so did that mm-hmm. make it easier or, did, or was that sort of a you know a, a bigger burden on you it is a burden and it's a lot of responsibility and you're responsible for somebody else's dreams. You're responsible for your own goals and their safety. So apart from, you know, knowing you have to have a good time, you have to drive good lines, you know, you have to get from top to bottom as quick as you can or you could ruin somebody else's chances of not getting to what, you know, letting them achieve their goal of being an Olympian. And all the time, the Olympics was always, always the goal. Mm. And um yeah, on, on rough tracks, on hard tracks every day, like you, 
I don't want to say we were there saying a prayer. We weren't. But you were always have that that hope that, oh, God, I hope I do this well or I don't hurt them or yeah. or I don't hurt us or we lose our chance of not getting into the next the next race or not being able to compete next week. So, yeah, you do take a lot of responsibility on and you are the responsible person. Brake men come and go and brake men change. The driver is what actually is the person that qualifies for the Olympics and they... Um, and they're the person who qualifies. So they're the responsible person. They're the, they're the person who qualifies a bobsleigh to compete in the Olympic Games. And then your brake woman, uh, obviously you have great loyalties to your brake woman, but a lot of nations have brake women who change on a week, weekly basis mm. and then they compete competitively to be the number one brake woman. Mm. Uh, you made it to Vancouver, but just before the game started, um, you had some medical news that wasn't exactly welcome at that yeah. time. Do you mind, if you wouldn't mind me just explaining what happened about two or three days before the games? Yeah, so we were fortunate to, uh, as a small nation, having not competed or tra- had the, the, the funding to compete or train in Vancouver prior to the games, we were brought out early in order to learn the track as were other small nations. So we had the benefit then of this amazing Olympic experience of being in the Olympic Village and using all the facilities and everything that's available to an Olympic accredited athlete. And one of the, the benefits is the medical centre and that is everything from dental to to doctors, to MRIs, to physios, to, to massage, to everything. So right throughout our whole career, we never had any of these benefits. But then, you know, two weeks before the Olympic Games kind of kicks off, you get into this environment and you're thinking, wow, everyone else has had this up until now. This is phenomenal. So obviously being <laughs> the Irish that we were, we took every benefit that we could <laughs> of using these facilities. We had massage and we had seen physios and we'd seen psychologists and we even went to the dentist. And this was amazing for us. Like, I couldn't believe that this is how other athletes are being treated. Now, on and off, right throughout my sporting career, I would have had injuries. I'm very tall. I'm over six foot one. Um, At the time, I was probably, I was big. I was muscly. I was strong. You were lifting sleds and doing heavy lifting and and, and things like that. And you're always carrying niggles and pains and everything. And you never really knew to what extent Um, you would see a physiotherapist here and there. But, you know, you you just got on with it. So when we got to the games, I went in to have um, a scan, an MRI scan done on my back. I always had back problems. And a sled is heavy. It's 245 kilos. You're dragging it. You're pulling it. You're you're doing all sorts of things incorrectly. And um, I had an MRI done and they discovered that I had three herniated discs in my back and it was very, very bad. I had very, very severe deterioration of my spine. Um, So and on top of that, knowing then I had this very, very bad issue, I also realized, discovered that I had a huge cyst and had endometriosis, which lots of women suffer from. But at that time, it was quite daunting for me because I now had two major medical health issues facing me days before we were to compete in an Olympic Games. So it's not that I had to make any decision that I wasn't going to compete. I just had to compete to the best of my ability, knowing that this might be the last time I was going to be able to compete. So, um, yeah, so that's that was one of the reasons that I went into retirement after the Games, that and sheer exhaustion from everything all the way on the build up to the Games. Did the doctors in the Olympic Village say to you, look, at, you really shouldn't do this. This is dangerous for you. Yeah, um, from the endometriosis side, no, that was more of a personal thing. But definitely from my back side, they were thinking that how have you 
been able to compete up until now? You know, what have you been doing or how have you been able to sit into a sled and deal with G-force, you know, to run? And all the pains and everything I had, I, I genuinely thought they were natural. Yeah. Like I would be like, oh, sure, I did a terrible hard session yesterday, you know, deadlifts or squats or something. I pushed it too hard. Not being able to get out of bed every morning without darting pain in my legs or or down my back. I, I, I genuinely thought everyone was feeling this, you know. <laughs> so to me, that was just part and parcel of it. But then when obviously we knew we had to go ahead with the games, it was an absolute dream. And we were there and we were there's no way we were not going to compete. Um. I then knew then afterwards I was going to have to go into retirement. I wasn't going to be able to do any more with this. My body was done. Mm. The adrenaline and everything had got us that far. But after that, I was bad. What was the experience of competing like? Because I'm sure, you know, you'd be quite emotional. A few days beforehand, you realise, hang on a second, this could be it. Uh, So when you went to the start line that day, you're not, you know, you're not competing for a medal. Are you competing against, you know, the other small nations? Are you competing against the track? Are you competing against yourself? Yeah, that's a good question because you know you're not you know you're not going to like you say get a medal out, but you're competing for pride mm. for your country, for your family, for everybody who put you there, and um, for every chance and every risk everyone ever took on you, for every coach, everyone who tried to help you all along the way, and just to show everyone we deserved to be there. That's mm. that's what got you to the line. Now we, I was sick with nerves so sick with nerves I had the privilege of carrying the flag the Olympic flag into the open ceremony which was just uh, just ecstatic I, I just the whole walking in there and the thousands and thousands of people who acknowledge you as an athlete on that level it was it was amazing but the standing on that start line knowing my mother and father and my brother and sister and everyone was there just the feeling of you know, I'm doing this for them uh, and knowing that we had a country at home of people who stayed up till all hours in the morning to watch us. Uh, it was unbelievable. And that's what got me down the track. I cannot say I love bobsleigh or I can't say I love driving or I love the thrill of roller coasters. Or I, I didn't. Mm. Uh, and the fear of this Whistler track, this brand new track, this fast track you know and I had been very I'd had some great training runs but I was terrified mm. but the the just wanting to be there for everybody and knowing and listening to the people cheering us on and and turning around to Claire um Claire Bergen the break woman on the line I'm like this is it we're doing this for us for our hard work and for everyone who helped us to get here and and we did it mm. Um, afterwards, was there a sense of relief? Sometimes in those situations, athletes have told me about a sense of emptiness, you know, once it's, it's all yeah. done. Uh, so yeah. when, when you got to the finish line then, what did you feel there? Yeah, it was over two days. So we had four runs, you know, so you're, yeah. you're building up so much time for, I can't even remember, it's like a minute, 145 kilometres an hour. Like you're just... You're, the adrenaline is pumping and pumping and pumping. And then after that, that, that last run, yes, there's a day or two of a static high. We came back to media. We came back to, to interviews and TV and, you know, but then there's, then that all starts to fade away. And then you're kind of thinking, right, what's next? Mm. You know, where's the buzz gone? Where, where are all the people? Where's, you know, what's the next step? And then, you know, then you have to take very serious decisions, life-changing decisions. Okay. My identity is no longer this. I'm no longer Aoife Hoey the bobsledder, the athlete, mm. where am I going to excel? Where am I going to achieve? How? You you do. You, there's a sense of loss. Mm. 
there's a loss in a whole chapter of your life, everything you gave every minute to, you sacrificed education, I started university, I didn't continue, you know, I, and then you're thinking, right, you do all sorts of funny things. You, I, I did strange things that I wouldn't, you know, I I cut my hair, I went off and did like, you know, you just don't know what you, who you are. You're trying to redefine who you are as a person. And um, and even now, looking back, I often think, well, gosh, would I, would I move home to Ireland? And one of the things I think was, who would I be in Ireland if I moved home now? You know, oh, I'd be that girl. That, you know, do you remember them, the girl that was in the limp? Like, that's, that's hard. So that's why I made a huge decision to change completely when the opportunity came to move to Sweden. I kind of thought, okay, it's time to do that. I, I, you know, I can't be that semi-retired athlete running around Morton Stadium and, you know, only achieving a little bit in athletics. You know, I had to, to move on and leave that behind so I'd feel satisfied. Um, when you say the chance came up to come to Sweden, I know you're working in education here. Are you teaching yeah. over here? Is that what brought you here? Um, yeah, I, you know, actually the chance came because I um, I met my husband um, on a on a weekend over in Stockholm and um, we clicked it off immediately and it was actually romance that brought me here in the, in the, in the first case and we commuted for up to about a year forward and back and I was working in Athletics Ireland in the high performance unit, had a great job, you know, had good opportunities at home if I had stayed within the athletics um, in, in that scene. Yeah. But then I saw that, like I said, you know, I wasn't 100% satisfied. So I took the chance and it was I decided to move over for him and then spent my time then trying to re-establish myself here stayed away from athletics didn't get involved in athletics clubs didn't do anything like that I said I just get a job become happy in myself you know find hobbies and pastimes and move on and um, and that's what I did I work in um, international English school in here in Orsha I'm um, the head of administration I have a good team here I work within education so yeah so that's what I'm doing now. Um, the Winter Olympics obviously is, will soon be upon us. Uh, will yes. you watch any of the sport at all? I will. You know, I spent a couple of years not watching bobsleigh and things. It was too hard. I um, not I had not that I'd lost interest for it. I I I just kept away from it from the fact that I couldn't be involved. So I only in the last couple of years I started to watch winter uh, the bobsleigh again. Still, there are still girls there who I would have started to drive with. I still know a few of the coaches. I do see them on the track or on the TV on on the on YouTube channel and stuff like that. So I. Yes, I'm back watching it again, loving it again. Keep thinking, oh, if it wasn't for the pandemic, we'd have gone to a track. I really want my husband to see it. Really wanted to know what I did, you know. So, yes, I'm looking forward to it now. And I think it'll be quite an interesting games with COVID and everything around. And one last question. I mean, it's, it's a fascinating story. Uh, but what I found most interesting was what happened after the Olympics there. Do you like who mm. you are now, Aoife? Are you happy with the decision you made to come to Sweden? Um... Yes, I do. I do think it was the right decision. Um, there'll always be that doubt. What would I be doing if I was at home? Mm. You know, and but you can't look back. Yeah, you, you have to. You have to keep going forward. I had every opportunity when I came here, medically as well. After the games, I had a the serious operation done for my endometriosis in the Matter Private in Dublin, and that was one of one solution to a problem that had been found. And then I had to move on. Then and um, here in, in Sweden, as you know, great opportunities for medical. I went then and had a triple spine fusion yeah. in the spine center, and um, and have never looked back. I have had no problems with my back. I have uh, fusion three sections of my back fused, twelve nuts and bolts, all carbon fiber. 
where I have been so, so lucky with the opportunities that have been here for me. We also, um, due to my endometriosis, had problems um, having a child naturally. I've had the opportunity to have IVF. We have our first child. He's three now through IVF, which I probably would never have had done at home. So Sweden has been amazing to me and I thoroughly enjoy living here. I do sometimes have a longing for home, especially now in the last two years because we haven't been home other than just Christmas gone. Um, So, yeah, I do think this was the right move. I have had all these different opportunities that I wouldn't have had at home. Um, So there's no point living in the past. You have to keep going forward. Well, as long as you put that young flay yours in a green bobsleigh rather than a blue and gold one, we'd be delighted. Aoife, thanks so much for talking to me. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. Thank you very much. And even with that rickety old sled, the Jamaicans are flying through the turns. This does not look good. Something's got to be wrong. The Jamaicans on a record pace as they fly almost out of control around the turn. Now the speed seems too much, and I don't think he's going to be able to hold it. They got a scene from the classic sports movie Cool Runnings with the Jamaican bobsleigh team and uh, I believe they are back in contention now at the Beijing Games. They're going to be there. Aoife Hoey won't, unfortunately, but you never know. Her little boy may well represent Ireland in the bobsled in the future. Um, Jamaicans in bobsleds, Irish people in bobsleds, sounds a bit mad. Irish people in cross-country skiing sounds a little bit madder still, especially when you consider that they've never had any experience in it before. But uh, that's what happened when Carl Lambert sat down with a few Irish people one day a little over a decade ago and decided to take part in a 90-kilometer cross-country ski race in Sweden, which, you know, people here, it's a classic, it's a rite of passage, it's one of those things that they do. But when you've no idea what you're doing, all of a sudden it becomes a whole lot harder, right? Carl is somebody I've known for a long time. Uh, great sportsman, great guy for being outdoors despite having uh, two children now and have being slightly limited by that, you know, but was always really, really active back when uh, we were all young, free and single and wandering around Stockholm. So in honour of the Olympic events and in honour of that cool running spirit, I decided to catch up with him just to ask him about that experience of taking part in the Vossa Loppet and Team Ireland, as it was called back in the day, really testing the boundaries of what was possible in sport. So here he is, the pride of Wicklow, Carl Lambert. <laughs> Now, of course, we do like to talk about sport on the Irish and Sweden podcast, and it's not always the elite. We've had Zach Elguzadi, and in the coming weeks, we'll have any amount of Olympians thrown at you. But we're also interested in some of the other sporting achievements in the community. And the maddest one I ever heard of was Team Ireland entering the Vasa Lopet, which is a ski race that goes on for 90 kilometers, which is 56 miles, back in 2011. And I'm delighted to bring with you to bring to you today one of the OGs of the Irish sports scene here, Carl Lambert from County Wicklow. Carl, how are you keeping? Hi, how are you doing? Um, I kind of resent, you know, that uh, you're not classing me in with the elite there, you know, but anyway. Uh, well, at, at this stage of your life, your elite years are behind you, you know, the uh, wonderful rugby that you played in, in Wicklow. I mean, I, nobody would take away from your legend. And of course, you were one of the first players uh, ever to play for the Stockholm Gales. None of that can ever be taken away from you. But today, Carl, it is your glittering skiing career that we wanted to talk about. <laughs> Why in the name of God did you decide that you wanted to ski in the Vossel Uppet? Two words, Don Corey. <laughs> now, for the uninitiated, right, Don, Don Curry works above at Ericsson and is the most competitive human being on the planet, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that, that's right. Um, yeah, so just a, a quick one, really, was um, 
October 2010. Um, I think we'd been doing some uh, Gaelic football training on the Sunday. And as you do, we, we went for a few points after and we were in Veerstrom's. And after, a, you know, I won't say a skin full of Guinness, but uh, we, we had a few Guinness in and Don Corey sort of brings up the idea of um, Vassa Luppet. You know, we, we really got, what's that? And, uh, you know, he, he explained that it was this 90 kilometer cross country event, you know, sort of quite prestigious event here in Sweden. And uh, would we be up for it? And, you know, we were thinking, it must be joking. I'd never set, set foot on a, a pair of skis in my life, whether it was downhill or not. And, um, but, you know, he, he got around. He's quite persuasive, actually. You know, so there was myself and Keith and a few other lads around. And, you know, a few drinks is always good. You know, so, yeah, yeah, sure. You know, that sounds fine. And, um, unfortunately, he followed it up during the week. You know, like, was that the drink talk? All right, are you actually going to do it? You know, and so then you kind of felt... We were kind of cajoled into it, you know. So off we went down to XXL or wherever the following weekend, and we got kitted out with skis, boots, poles, clothing, and it cost a fortune actually. You know, and we, we took off on it. But let, let's just get one thing straight here, Carl. At that point, had you ever stood on a pair of cross-country skis in your no, life? No, no, not at all. Nothing. Absolutely zero. There was no skiing, no ice skating, no snowboarding, no nothing at that point. Like sliding home from the pub was the closest that you'd ever That's come to any of those sports. You would get, you know. I think I remember as a kid, you know, there was a, a big field over the over the road from us, and you know, the bit of snow, the, the heavy snow of '84, whatever, over you know, on a, a sort of plastic coal sack, and we had socks for gloves, you know, which you know your your hands would freeze in. But that was pretty much my experience of snow, even though I'd been in Sweden, you know, about four years. Now this is October 2010, right? The Vossaloppa takes place on the first Sunday of March every year. So you basically had six months to learn how cross country skiing. And again, 90 kilometers is an awful long way. So how did you like? What was the first time you stood on skis? Like, hold on, I mean, six months. I reckon we had about six weeks. <laughs> the um, what had happened was it, it was a pretty bad um, winter that year. And what I mean by bad is that there was no snow. Um, not like in Ireland, if it's pretty bad, it means that there was a you know a centimeter of snow had arrived. Um, yeah, so we we just got, literally we had no idea, so we we just bought the equipment and we I think myself and Keith ended up in a there was a, a sort of a foresty area in Orsvik here, not far from us, and uh, we just arrived one evening and, and strapped them on and saw let's let's see what happens here. We we had absolutely no idea what we were doing and. Mm. Like the tech, the waxing of it, you know. So there's a lot of YouTube videos at the start. <laughs> this out, yeah. So there are. You mentioned one thing there, okay? You put wax on the skis, and there's two kinds of wax, right? One is to make it easier to ski when you're going downhill, and to make it go a little bit faster. But you also have a sticky wax just under your foot to make it easier for the uphill parts because it's not all downhill, right? Mm. Yeah, that's it. The wax is a, is a science within itself, um, especially as you mentioned that that sticky wax. Because there, there's different types of wax depending on the type of snow, the the temperature of the snow, and old and new snow. And if you get it wrong, you'll either you won't get any grip, so you can't go uphill at all. Or if you get it wrong again for another reason, you will get a massive pile of snow actually sticking to the the skis, and you you basically can't move at all. Mm. So it's um yeah, it's quite. So 
so how did you learn the technique then? Because basically there's a couple of different techniques, right? You have the classic technique, which is like, um, you know, you're basically, it's like jogging with ski, yep. with these skis on your, on your feet. Right. And then the, the, uh, the freestyle technique is like a skating technique where you go sort of one foot at a time. Right. But how did you learn those techniques? Was that YouTube or what? Well, the, the skating um, is actually banned for Vassalopa. It's the classic style that you can only use in a, mm -hmm. Um, so um, yeah, it was a couple of a uh, couple of YouTube videos, um, and then uh, Lisa Bruton's husband Parry joined us, and he, being a Swede, he had actually very good experience, and um, so he was able to show us a, a few hints and tips as we we caught the kind of the image of his arse and his back as he shut off into the distance <laughs> we were left standing there and um, to figure it out but um yeah so, so this is this is Per Helstadius and Per is married to Lisa Helstadius Lisa's uh, originally Lisa Bruton from Dublin and he sort of looked at herself and Cardi and Keith Hearn from County Waterford yet again you know more known for the hurling than the cross-country skiing and he basically took pity on you and decided he was going to join Team Ireland as yeah. a sort of a player coach right yeah, well, that was it. There wasn't that much coaching, but um, yeah, <laughs> so he joined us. Uh, yeah, and it was great. So it was it was the four of us, and it, it was it was great camaraderie actually. And uh, we did most of our training actually down in um, is it August or Farsta? There's a there's a there's um, a golf course down there. So during the winter, they they actually have a cross country skiing uh, route mm. on it. So it was a lot of time spent there. But um, I you know I have to admit you know when it comes to the technique now we got the very basics, and I, I really mean the very basics. But another thing that you can actually do is what's called polling. And it literally is getting the two ski poles, digging them into the ground and pulling yourself along. And, yeah. and you just it it you just dog it basically, for want of a better description. And that's what we did. Yeah, we, no, yeah, exactly. I was gonna say for those who don't know you and who've never seen your tremendous biceps and triceps that you sort of developed there during your glittering rugby career, that really sounds to me like that's uh, that's the way forward for you, yeah. Um, yeah, that, it got us around. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it was great training for um, the upper body, let's say, and, and the triceps did get a, an awful workout over those six weeks that we had um, because you couldn't learn the technique um, quick enough. So, so, so you didn't bother after making the decision in October, you sort of didn't bother. You went, okay, out after Christmas, we get stuck into that. And then you just did everything in a six-week period then. But, but that's pretty much it, yeah, because by the time we sort of got around, it, it took a while to buy the stuff and, and come together. And, and then we had to wait for the snow. There, yeah. there was no snow at that time. So really, we only got going um, just after Christmas mm. um, when we yeah got stuck into it. And even then, it was quite sporadic. Mm. um to do it because we weren't traveling up to Berlanga or to any of the places that had a you know a decent uh, snow cover yeah um, so yeah it was really took the chances what we got um you know there was a lot of Saturdays meeting up at eight o'clock in Farsta and Saturday morning and and you'd literally just go around in six kilometer circles until four in the afternoon and get into cargo home and and do that again um at the next chance you could and that was it and yeah you just you know, stubbornness, you know, was, was the, the plan of attack for the, the day itself. How quickly did Pal Hastadius give up trying to coach you? Oh, I'd say within the first 20 minutes or so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, said, nah, this is not happening, lads. Yeah, yeah, no, I just like, forget about him. You know, because it, it was the same. I know Pear was great, you know, and he, he'd help us out. Um, But the general attitude of Swedes when you would tell them, go, yeah, we're going to do Vatsalo, but they just laugh at you. Uh, it's strict, you know, really, they laugh at you, no chance. Oh, or you must be really good at cross-country skiing. Go, nah, I've never done it before. And the, the, the kind of... You know, just yeah, there was just laughing your face. You know, there's no chance. There's not a hope in hell you can do it. And 
that's not a good thing to say to a, a you know stubborn Irish lad. You know, I was like, well, I'll, I'll fucking show you. You know, <laughs> you know use language. Um, you know, I think you know Keita got it from his in-laws. You know, because uh, they're a very sporty family. You know, yeah. so he arrived in and and uh, you know I think uh, Matt's uh, his you know father-in-law. You know, he played basketball for Sweden. I think you know, so they had yeah. a you know high elite sort of opinion of, of sports. Uh, you know when. Keith came in and, and said that you know he's going to do Vassal up, and you know, I, I don't think they they took t- too much credence to it, and yeah. know, I think that, that was like a red rag to a bull for the the Waterford fella, you know. Yeah, and Don Cardi is as he is. Like if you're tossing a coin, he wants to win, basically. Yeah, you know, I'll tell you a story about him later about um uh, Vansbury Simning, and you know, which is just absolutely ridiculous, you know, the, what he did for that in in itself. But um, yeah. so there there is a thing called the Swedish Classic, which involves a bicycle race, Vasaloppet, and then what was the other one? Uh, so you've got the the swim, the three kilometer swim. You've got the thirty kilometer cross country run in leading a loppet. Yeah, and you've got um Vattenrunden, which is a three hundred kilometer swim. Or sorry, a, a cycle, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so um, Don Core is a lot to answer for. <laughs> because that, that was done the following year then, wasn't it? No, we did it all in a row. We we did it, you know, so wow. we, we, we finished Basel up in, in February. Then it was the case, oh, we've done that. Yeah. Um, well, what's next on the list? Okay, well, it's, it's Vatten London in a couple of weeks. You know, well, let's do a 300-kilometer cycle for yeah. cracking. I, I don't know how that man has any friends left, right? Um, yeah. t- take me through the practical things of it, because I think there's like something like, I don't know how many thousand people take part in it, <clears throat> but it's broadcast on the TV here, Carl. Uh, how like how do you get up there? Did you just drive up there in the day, stick your skis on and off you pop? No, you, you can do. Now, see, there, there is actually, you've got Vassal up with itself, you know, and but you need to be a member of a, a skiing club to be able to ski on the actual day of Vassal up with, yeah. um, and, it, and it just books out and um, it's so popular. But, on the previous week or the previous weekend, there's what's called Opet Sport. So it's the exact same route. Yeah. But anybody can uh, join up on it. And um, so that's what we had done. Uh, so we signed up and uh, we were lucky that because um, Don was uh, working or still is working with Ericsson, um, they had their own skiing group and they you know hired a bus and uh, uh, a little stuga or you know a hostel um just yeah. near the start them um, so we were able to tag along with them and, and hop on the bus and, and travel with Ericsson um mm-hmm. as a group and uh, but then we just did it ourselves and so I think that and then the plan was that the bus would return back to Stockholm after Vasalopet when the last person got onto the bus mm. and that's what we did not want to be was the last person you know the, the bloody Irish you know these yeah. fools coming along here two but, three hours after everybody else delaying everyone but no we were far from it you know we we were half pissed by the time uh they <laughs> in, celebrating with drinks on the back of the bus by the time the last uh, sweep got onto it so that but, was but so but, what time in the morning did your race start at then uh oh, great question it was probably around eight o'clock or so right and yeah. you set off there and you're there's yourself and cardi and keith and powers in the race as well yeah. and, did, and did, fourteen thousand others you know yeah around you it's not easy actually yeah so did you all manage to stick together as this little you know group this little like irish commandos there or did you quickly get split up because i'd say cory cory doesn't wait for anybody he just lash off by himself that's what i was just going to say we 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 call it team ireland but it's kind of team ireland and don cory because he just fecked off himself and no 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 no, it was was a couple of different things because first of all pair health steady say unbelievable um cross-country skier so so he was off like a shot which is fair enough there was no need to be waiting for us yeah um, and then it was myself keith and don and then obviously don's got his um uh, very competitive uh, side so so once the 
the tracks opened up a bit because I'd say 14,000 people at the very start with, mm. you know, six foot long skis. It, it's a mess and uh, it starts off on a hill pretty much. Um, so it's very slow going. And then once it opens up, then you can start to put a bit of speed in. Um, yeah. And yeah, so and then you, you stop at the towns along the way, you know, for a break or for something to eat or for some blue bar supper or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we, we did in the end kind of split up. But I, myself and Keith were together um, for the whole way. Um, we, we stuck together. Yeah. How how long does it take you to do 90 kilometers when you're just polling, when you're just dragging yourself along yeah, with two ski poles? Well, let's say, let's say, I think it was Pear came in with about seven hours or seven and a half hours. That's really good. Yeah, really good. And I can't remember what Don came in at, but myself and Keith came in at, um, I think it was eight hours and 54 minutes. So we, we broke the nine hour mark, which was, was great. That's a, nine hours is a respectable time for people that can actually cross country ski. Wow. So, um, yeah, I think we were quite happy with that. And, you know, the Swedes, when we were able to go, come back home and sort of stick our fingers up with the Swedes, going, I told you, um, you know, to say that we came in under nine hours was, um, it seemed to impress a few people, all right? It's incredible. I mean, look, you know, even after all these years, I know I've heard the story a thousand times before, but I can never remember the time. And I, I, every time you tell me, I'm always impressed. I'm like, under nine hours is incredible. What did your body feel like after that? Because again, you're no stranger to the gym. You're no stranger to sport. You played plenty of Gaelic football and rugby in your time. And, you know, at that time you were in the gym every day of the week. So what did you feel like when you crossed the finish line? Well, for us bloody tired actually but elated you know kind of the endorphins kick in or some of the adrenaline you know just the fact that we we did it and you know sort of you you ski in up the main street of mora um is where the the finish line is and you've got all the, the thousands of people out there clapping even after the nine hours and the elites have been in and you know gone home at that yeah. point but they're still out there kind of encouraging everybody in and and that was great just just the, the sense of achievement so you're on a they're on an absolute buzz and i think over the, the following few days, you're probably a bit tired, tired more so than sore. Because, yeah, the, back then I was doing a lot of running and I was a hell of a lot fitter than I am now. And, mm. you know, I had done a lot of weight training and so on. And, and I guess the, the six weeks of polling, um, you know, just, you know, it kind of stood to us a bit. You know, so it didn't feel too bad, actually. You know, and the, the weather was good that day. The snow conditions were great. Um, I had the skis professionally waxed. So we didn't have to worry about that. So there's a, a lot really kind of went with us on the day as well. And, you know, we, we didn't fall and hurt ourselves. It well, fell twice, but there was no there was no uh, injuries and, you know, we didn't break anything. So, um, you know, it, it kind of, everything went for us. So to come in and, and even the next few days, it was, it was fine. Yeah, we we're, we're kind of on a buzz, to be honest with you. Needless to say, the lads had a big bag of cans in the van. But did you have to eat something afterwards? Were you starving by the time you got across the? Yeah, you were hungry. Like we were, we were great because we realised then we had the time, so we managed to to go to a local restaurant, have a steak dinner, a couple of drinks, and and still get on the bus. And yeah, it was funny that, of course, we the we the rake of cans. You know, we were sitting down the back and we the rake of cans in the bags in you know kind of preparation. I think we did with some bottle of Jameson and stuff. And <laughs> so we were down the back, and then. When it took off, it was quite late at night by the time we were leaving, and it's a good trip back. Mm. And you know, so we had the Swedes around us, you know, and they, they just did it and got back on the bus, and it's as if the most normal thing. And then you've got a bunch of Irish lads down the back, you know, on an absolute high um, shouting and roaring and drinking, well, drinking and, and the crack, you know. So we felt a bit bad for the people around us because they were just looking to sleep on the way home. So we were handing out cans and shots of whiskey to them, you know, just to kind of appease them a little bit, you know. <laughs> 
And was that the end of it then? Like, you know, when you get dropped off in the center of Stockholm, then you head off home and then, you know, it starts to sort of seep away. Like, but do you still have a sense of achievement after doing that car? Yeah. You know, I, it's uh, maybe not so much anymore. You know, last year, kind of the 10 years came up, came up of it, you know, 2011 and you're kind of living off past glories. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I've, I've still got my Swedish classic diploma here on the wall in front of me and that, you know, because it, it's not something I'd ever done before. And, you know, we just decided to do it and, you know, we, we managed to, to complete it, you know, not just Vasa, but, you know, to go and do the other three events in a row, you know, yeah. It's, it, yeah, it, it's, it's nice to think I did it, you know, because not a chance I'd be able to do it now, not mm-hmm. with, you know, young children that because the amount of time, dedication and even money that we put into it that year in, in terms of buying equipment, you know, the, you know, an entry level road bike, you know, you're talking at least 13, 14,000 crowns or whatever. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, there's a sense of achievement there that I still, I remember back fondly on, but uh, it's almost that I would remember back the, the camaraderie and the, you know, the, <clears throat> the group of us that were there and, you yeah. know, sort of being up in pair with pair and Lisa and nice, you know, Sunday dinner after doing um the training and that, and that, lots of fun memories of that you know even back then her her kids when you know, were only the the age of my children are now yeah. but now they're off into university and so on you know yeah. and so it's yeah I, I look back fondly on it where are the skis now carl do you know the skis <laughs> no word of a lie the skis are in the shed and <laughs> they have not been touched since i crossed that uh finish line in mora uh, 2011 They've still got the same wax on them or whatever wax was left on them after 90 kilometers. They have not been touched. Yeah. And you wouldn't be tempted to stick them on. There was a bit of snow on the ground out there now. You wouldn't be tempted to stick them on where you live. You know, you're sort of, you're not exactly yeah. out in the country, but there's a bit of space around you there. There's an old yeah. airfield near where you live. There's a couple of tracks around, actually. Do you know, I haven't tempted recently, but um, we've just been putting the kids into um, over in Brukesback. It's not too far from us. It's a, a very steep but short uh slope and um we've got them into sort of uh downhill skiing classes or whatever so in a in another fit of spontaneity a year ago i went out and bought skis uh you know downhill skiing skis or whatever you call it um sure. for family so that's what i'm trying at the moment is to teach myself how to ski downhill yeah. and not kill myself um so yeah there we'll, we'll go up north in a couple of weeks for for a weekend and that so yeah, I'd like to get around cross-country skiing again because I think this time I would be able to enjoy it. 11 yeah. years ago, we couldn't enjoy it because it was a purpose. We need to do 90 kilometers. I don't care how we do it, just get out. And so we were doing circles and circles uh, without any enjoyment. Uh, it was just we need to get it under the under the skis, get the, yeah. the kilometers in. And let's say 10 years' time now when your kids are a little bit more grown up, they're teenagers, you have a little bit more time in your hands and that kind of thing. Do you ever think you might give it another crack, the 20th I, anniversary of Team Ireland? You know, yeah, do you know what? I? It's a romantic idea. Um, but, yeah, uh, you know, I'm always up for a bit of a challenge, especially if somebody, you know, sort of lays a bet down or something. It's a, <laughs> my arm's easily twisted. Uh, so, yeah, I, I could... I could see it, yeah, but it, it takes a lot of time. Um, but I could definitely see myself trying it again. Um, definitely wouldn't do the the um, fat and rundon or the Lidding and Lockbit because they're just nasty. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, they, I really enjoy the skiing, actually. Yeah. Um, one last question. Will you pay any attention to the Winter Olympics or are you more interested in doing it than watching it? 
No, I, I actually watch it. Um, I, I do enjoy it. And it's one, of the, one of my favorite sports actually is curling. I love it. Yeah. I get absolutely engrossed in the in the curling, especially obviously you've got the Swedish women being so so good as well. And um, But yeah, I, I do it. Um, I'm not interested in the, the snowboarding, you know, the, the trendy stuff that sort of came in, but uh, give me a good slalom or or um, or the, the curling. Yeah, that's uh, really into it. Well, hopefully in 10 years' time, Carl, this podcast will still be going strong. And the first time you're going back training with Team Ireland, you can give me a call and we'll get out there and we'll record the whole thing and bring it to people on the Irish and Sweden podcast. But until then, my friend, take care out in those skiing tracks. Thanks very much for having me, Phil. That was the legendary Carl Lambert. And I love the way there's that subtle little shift when you speak to him, right? Because there is a bit of a competitor buried in there somewhere as well. And you say, would you ever take a do it again? He goes, no. And then he goes, well, maybe. Well, actually, I'm learning how to ski downhill at the moment. So, you know, it's uh, it's great to be that active. Carl is not the oldest man in the world. I'd be a good few years older than him. I said, well, not a good few years, but certainly a handful of years older than him as well. And to be able to be, like, I'm 50 now, and to be able to be still kicking a ball and that kind of thing, I mean, there's so much crack to be had out of it. And as you can hear there, like, you know, the the enjoyment of being together with Keith and Don and the wonderful Pat Health Stardius. Pat is just the nicest man you'll ever meet. Uh, but to be part of something and doing something together with them and achieving something together, you know, there's, there's a real sense of, of crack and of fun. And, you know, winning or losing doesn't really matter at that stage as long as you're out and about and you're doing your thing, you know. And as previously mentioned on this podcast, I am currently out and about and doing my thing in China. So, um, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. There will be another sporting focus next week. I'm going to talk to some of the Olympians that are actually representing Ireland over there in Beijing, right? So these are some of the people that you're going to see on the telly. Uh, there's going to be a little bit more cross-country skiing and a qualified young doctor um, born to an Irish family in England. She's going to be telling us about taking part in the luge, which if you think cross-country skiing is mad, well, you see these lads. It's basically sliding down an icy track on a freaking tea tray, you know, but it's a, it's she's a wonderful girl and it's just a, a great story as well about how she got into it, you know, because this is what she always wants to do in the meantime if you can support the podcast via swish one two three twenty four twenty four one six six patreon.com forward slash arrowman in stockholm as i said that's the preferred one because then at least i know there's a tiny little bit of money coming in from everybody every month and that keeps me ticking over here or if you want to advertise or if you want to sponsor the show Irish and Sweden podcast at gmail.com again we'll remind you that the Swedish Irish Society are always looking for volunteers to help out at the St. Patrick's Day Parade in in March Uh, and you can contact them info at swedishirish.se we'll get you in touch with Sophie Murphy and Donal and the gang over there at the Swedish Irish Society so get in touch there get involved there and uh, I'll be back next week with another podcast so wherever you are in Sweden wherever you are in Ireland wherever you are in the world take care of yourself take care of one another and I'll talk to you again very soon indeed